The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, welcome, Emmanuel Faith. It's good to be together today, isn't it? If you're joining us out in Resonate, welcome to you as well. We are glad that you're here. If you're new with us, you picked a great day to join us. We're on week two of a series that we're calling Satisfied, where we're walking through David's Psalm, the 23rd Psalm. It's an epic poem that my guess is you've, uh, you're aware of on some level, you've heard uh, and maybe even have memorized. I wanna highlight that we have a group of people that are writing daily devotionals that go along with uh, our sermons now. And so you can sign up for those online or if you need a hard copy, you can pick it up in the lobby on your way out. For four years while I was in college, I had the opportunity to be a backpacking guide with Young Life. And I absolutely loved spending time in the outdoors. I, I always tell people that uh, some of my most important relationships were formed on a backpacking trail. I met Jesus on a backpacking trail, and I met my wife on a backpacking trail. Uh, my wife and I were backpacking guides together, and um, we met guiding trips. And this is a picture of us back in the day. Um, if you're wondering if that's a do-rag on my head, it is. It probably gives every single guy in the congregation hope today, okay? So you're welcome, you're welcome. Uh, but the, the trips would follow the same narrative arc. They were all different, but, but they followed the same rhythm and same pattern. The group, the students, high schoolers would show up at the trailhead and we would meet them as guides for the very first time. And inevitably, there would be somebody there showing up. I can remember one student showed up and he was dressed in dress shoes and jeans for a 40 mile long, seven day backpacking trip. And I immediately knew it was going to be a long week with weeping and gnashing of teeth. We gave the students most of the gear that they would need, a backpack and sleeping bag, etc. but there was one piece of gear that they never got, a map. See, see only the, the guides had maps. The students, they were just along for the ride. They had to hand over their watches at the beginning of the trip so that they didn't know what time it was. And, and I started to think about that this week as I thought about the way that, that God leads us. And, and I don't know about you, but I, so much of the time, I would love to get a map. Wouldn't you? Here's what your life's gonna look like. Here's the path you can walk and here's the different decisions you could make. And you get to see it all from sort of a, a bird's eye view. I'd love a map, but you may be aware of this. In life, we don't get a map, do we? We get a guide. Uh, we're, we're map people, aren't we? 
I mean, we're people who love, love being sort of a rugged, individualistic, postmodern selves where freedom and liberty and progress mean that we reject the idea that anybody should tell us where to go or what to do. I mean, in so many ways, the air that we breathe is Frank Sinatra's song, I did it my way. I did it my way. I don't know about you, but most days I would prefer a map over a guide. I would prefer certainty over ambiguity. I'd prefer control over trust. I would choose directions over following. I I wanna be the captain of my own ship, the master of my own domain who's with me. Yeah, I, I think most of us probably are, but following, following a guide requires surrender. And it's in that disorientation. If you've tuned out for a moment, come back, please. Don't miss this. It's in the disorientation that we experience through surrender that God does some of his greatest transformative work in our soul. When we say, I don't get it, but I'm with you. I love the way that the great songwriter, Rich Mullins put it when he said this. He said, I can't see how you're leading me unless you've led me here to where I'm lost enough to let myself be led. Oh, isn't that so true? It's those moments where we go, oh, fine. I don't get it. I don't understand the health diagnosis. I don't understand why the kids have gone that way. I don't understand what's going on with the job. I I got it, God, I just don't get it. But if you've led me here so that I throw my hands up in the air and go, you take the wheel, then fine, then fine. I think Mullins was right. I think it's those moments that will define and shape our lives. And it's those moments that David turns his mind to in Psalm 23. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open there. Psalm 23, page 474 on the Bible that's in front of you in the pew if you need to follow along there. But in this next little phrase, and remember, we're taking it slow through this series, just gazing at each one of these phrases that David writes in this poem and trying to drink it in deeply. And here's this next portion we're studying, verses two and three today. Here's what David writes. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You'll notice that this passage, this part of the text is all built around movement. It's built around journey, leading, and paths. It's because sheep were constantly on the move. Um, Shepherds would tell you sheep can't be left in the same place for too long because they will absolutely decimate the ground. Philip Keller in his little book, Shepherds Look at Psalm 23, wrote this. He said, the greatest single safeguard a shepherd has in handling his flock is to keep them on the move. They moved them, not because just because they decimate the ground, but it was a way to keep the sheep safe. 
And so David, being the king and thinking back on his life as a shepherd, he goes, well, that's sort of the way that God leads us. He, he moves us. Life is a journey. It's the reason that, 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 that works like the Odyssey and Lord of the Rings just seem to resonate with our soul. Because we know that life is a journey. And so Jesus will say in John chapter 10, sort of the echo passage from Psalm 23, my sheep, what? Hear my voice. He says, he says I'm their guide. They hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, here's the main point for our time this morning. If you want Jesus to feed your soul, you must allow him to lead your life. I think there's so many people who we go, man, we want the things that Jesus offered. We're just not willing to follow Jesus into the things that he commands us. I want what Jesus offers, but I'm not willing to love my enemies and I'm not willing to forgive those that wrong me and I'm not willing to let go of my anger. I want the stuff he offers. I'm just not willing to do the things that he invites and calls me to do. But you'll notice in this text, Psalm 23, that this movement, this journey, isn't primarily about where we are physically, geographically. Now, as one who has moved their family from Colorado to California, I can tell you that geography is not insignificant. It's just not the point of what David is talking about here. What David is talking about here is the way that Jesus or Yahweh's leading is not primarily about where we're going, but about who we're becoming. The journey that he's taking us in our transformation about the type of people that we are becoming. So let's talk about that. Let, let's dive in and see what David would say in Psalm 23 about the way God wants to lead us and shape us to become different kinds of people. Here's what he says. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. I don't know about you, but when I read that, that word, that phrase, he makes me, I get the picture in my mind of a shepherd sort of swiping the, sh the feet out from beneath the sheep and pinning the sheep down. Who's with me? Like, that's the picture that I get in my head. <laughs> and one of the things that a shepherd would tell you is that it's impossible to make a sheep lie down. Sounds a little bit like bedtime in the Paulson household. Sometimes it just feels impossible. I think the comedian Jim Gaffigan said it well. He said, bedtime is a crisis. Kids act like they've never been to bed before. It turns into a hostage situation, he says. But in reverse, you say, I'll give you anything if you just stay in there, right? He makes me lie down. No, no, no. You don't make a sheep lie down. They only lie down under two conditions. Number one, they're completely and utterly exhausted. Or number two, there's two things that happen simultaneously and then they lie down. First, the sheep is well-fed. No hunger whatsoever. 
If they're hungry, they will wander and search for food. Second, they feel completely safe. No threat. So when David writes, God is my shepherd, he satisfies my soul, he makes me lie down. Here's what he's saying. God feeds my soul and protects me in such a way. By the way, we have a word for that. It's called love. Love. Sufficiently fed, completely safe. And he goes, and it's in that moment that we lie down. I'd say it like this this morning, that there's this calm that we start to experience. It's the, the invitation that Jesus would give to his disciples centuries later when he would say to them, come to me. Like, I'm not gonna force myself on you. I'm not going to make you do this, but I'm going to hold out the invitation. I want to be your shepherd. Will you come and, and be my sheep? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All you worn out on religion and trying to keep the law, trying to be good enough, Jesus says, come to me. Take my yoke upon you and what? Learn from me. Because there's some patterns of your mind that are just so ingrained in you. You're going to have to learn how to live in the kingdom sufficiently fed and protected. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. It's this word in the Greek, anaposis, and it literally means an inner tranquility, like your soul, your mind, your spirit, your emotions just go, oh, yeah. Do we need this in our world today? Um, Recently, that John Hopkins Health Review just released an article and they said this, busyness is more than an annoying truth of the modern life. It has actually emerged as a significant health concern. Did you know that your doctor can now diagnose you with hurry sickness? <laughs> Defined as constant and rising anxiety and being in a rush. 50% of Americans say that they are workaholics and some of them wear it like a badge of success, right? I mean, there's this feature on uh, your iPhone if you're listening to a podcast where you can listen to a podcast in two times the speed that the teaching or whatever you're listening to was originally delivered. Anybody else love that button? Snonis, admit it. Yeah, I go on a run. Most of the runs I go on, I'm listening to something at two times the speed, right? Because I can get twice as much in. Maybe I run twice as fast. <laughs> but I think a lot of life at two, we're masking, we're packing as much of it in, and it's into that space, Emmanuel Faith, hear me, that Jesus wants to say to you and me today, come, learn. Rest, rest. So maybe this week, you actually, you practice that idea of a calm spirit. Maybe there's a few things you could do. What if this week, and this is gonna be revolutionary, I know. What if this week you said, this whole week, I'm gonna drive the speed limit. 
It's crazy. It's crazy. What, what, if, what if in order to train your soul to rest, what if you chose the longer line at the grocery store? What, what if you started to practice Sabbath? You just said one day a week, one day I'm not gonna work and I'm just gonna enjoy God and I'm gonna enjoy the life that he's given me and I'm gonna worship him and I'm gonna remember that when I don't work, God still does and the world keeps spinning. It's crazy. It's an invitation for you though. Come, he says, and find rest. And then David transitions and he says, here's, here's what's gonna happen when that happens. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. Literally in the Hebrew, this phrase could be translated, he brings me back. It was a picture that Ezekiel would paint years later about the coming of the ultimate good shepherd, that what God would be like in contrast to the shepherds that Israel had in that day, with the way that the good shepherd would come and would bring his people back. Listen to the way that he writes about this. He says this, and you're gonna notice the theme. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the stray and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. I will bring them back, God says. Friends, this is the gospel. It's not that we earn anything from God, it's that God in Christ is pursuing you, chasing you down, you don't earn grace. And even the posture of the soul that is restored is of one who is lying down. You get that? Like that's the way God starts to weave us back together. He makes me lie down and then when I'm lying down, he restores my soul. Uh, the question would maybe remain, if the uh, literal Hebrew would say, he brings me back, the question is to what or to whom? A lot of us would answer that immediately and say, well, he brings me back to God. To that I would say, yes and amen. And, and he brings you back to you. <laughs> See, sin didn't just fracture our relationship with God. Sin has fractured our relationship with God, with each other, with creation, and with ourselves. So there's things that we carry, guilt and shame, that we were never meant to carry. So you might be asking, hey, Ryan, well, what does that actually really look like in real life? Here, here's what it looks like, not like that. Here's what it looks like. It looks like a healed soul, a healed soul. Every translation, even though the Hebrew literally reads, he brings me back, every translation that I found translates that passage, that line, he restores my soul. He heals me. Um, it echoes what the Apostle Paul would write to the church at Thessalonica. I love the way that the message paraphrase puts this. First Thessalonians chapter five, he writes this. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole, put you back together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. So how do we step into this? 
How do we say, God, I want, I want that. How do I step into that? Great question. Let me give you two things this morning. First, first, we become people of confession. We confess our sins. Uh, David says, even though sin doesn't have power, even though sin doesn't, the punishment of sin is released, that it can still have power in our life uh, when we hold on to it. He says this in Psalm chapter 33, verses three through five, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He goes, listen, the way I carried my sin actually started to crush my body. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of the summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, one of our ways our soul begins to be destroyed is when we just hold on to our sin and our guilt and our shame, and we go, this is actually really who I am. And today, I think a word for some of you is that Jesus is inviting you to bring what's in the darkness into the light and say to him, here's really who I've been, here's what's gone on, and I want you to heal it. See, confession isn't about earning anything from God. Confession is about two things. Confession is a platform to be honest, to know that nothing is hidden before God, that he sees it all anyway, and so we can speak it out honestly without, without him going, I didn't see that coming. But second, second, confession is a pathway to come home. It's a platform to be honest, and it's a pathway to come home. And regardless of how far you have strayed, I want you to know this morning that in Jesus, there is always a way to come home. Bring it into the light. Allow him to shine on it, because what we continue to hide, Jesus cannot heal. And so we become people who confess our sin and Jesus starts to heal our soul in that. But we also become people who don't just confess our sin, we also confess our identity. Our identity. We remind ourselves who we are in Christ. And if you are a follower of Jesus today, I want you to know that the scriptures say, according to the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, that you are a child of the most high God. Some people have this idea in their minds that John 3.16 reads, for God so hated the world that he sent his son so that he could love the world. That is not the way it reads, friends. Jesus does not save us from God. Jesus is sent by God because of God's love for the world and his desire to redeem and restore. And for some of you, for some of you, you're in this space and your soul is wounded, not because of things that you've done, but because of things that have been done to you. And you've been wounded, you've been taken advantage of, you've been abused, you've been dehumanized. And I want, you, I want you to know this morning, according to the scriptures, if you are in Christ, you're not only a new creation, but you are adopted as God's child. You are children of the most high God this morning. Somebody say amen. amen. So we confess our sin, but we also confess our identity. This is who we are. 
It's a story of a rabbi who had been studying most of the day and it bled into the night and he was walking home in the dark. And he was just sort of in his head and he got to this fork in the road and he should have gone to the left and he went to the right instead. Just walking along and all of a sudden he heard this booming voice. Who are you? And what are you doing here? The rabbi was sort of caught off guard and he said, excuse me? Who are you? And what are you doing here? The Roman guard yelled back. The rabbi paused for a moment and said to him, how much do they pay you to ask that question? The Roman guard was like, five denarii a day. And the rabbi responded, I will pay you twice as much to stand at my door and ask me every morning and every night, who are you and what are you doing here? It might be the greatest question you could be asked and it might be the most important answer that you could give if you're a follower of Jesus. You are a child of the most high God. Stand in it, friends. Confess it. It's one of the ways that Jesus begins to heal our soul. And so as a person finds rest and as a person finds healing for their soul, there's this new kind of life that begins to burst forth. It says, he leads me in paths of what? Righteousness for his name's sake. Paths of righteousness. I think most of us, we probably think of righteousness as a camp, right? It's a place that we live. It's a position that we hold. And certainly in the New Testament, righteousness is discussed in a judicial sense at some points. But for a Hebrew mind, Righteousness wasn't just about right standing with God. Righteousness was about right relationships with everybody. It wasn't just a vertical thing. It was a horizontal thing. The way that uh, Brian Loritz puts it, I think, is so poignant. He says this, great pastor. If the gospel means anything to you personally, it must mean something to you relationally. And so David says, this is the kind of path that God is, is inviting us to walk on, a calm spirit that leads to a healed soul that then thrusts us into the world to be part of God's mission to renew all things. See, paths of righteousness forces us to reject some kind of pathological formation that's simply privatized and individualized, a faith that's just personal, paths of righteousness launches us into the world to be the hands and feet of Jesus in every relationship that we have. So this week it might look like extending or receiving forgiveness. We had a great example of that in the news this week. It might look like breaking down racial divides or fighting for justice. It might mean buying fair trade or responsibly sourced food or considering the environmental impact of some of our consumption. 
It might mean participating in organizations like Safe Families right here in San Diego. It may mean participating and linking arms with people who are combating human trafficking. It may mean standing in the middle of what inevitably will be a contentious political season, standing in the middle to be a peacemaker because that's the only place you can be as a peacemaker. What does it demand of you? David ends with this phrase, for his namesake. I wrestled with that a little bit. What does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? Here's what I think it means. Nobody looks at a healthy sheep and thinks, they must work out. I mean, they don't. They're not going like, Bo Peep's really like working the glukes and Bo, Bo Peep must have been on that treadmill. Bo Peep's working. No, no, no. Nobody looks at a healthy sheep and thinks they must work out. They look at a healthy sheep and think they must have an amazing shepherd. That's what they think. And that's exactly David's point, that when the sheep are healthy, the shepherd gets the glory. And Emmanuel Faith, I long for a day when the world looks at the church and sees people who have a calm spirit, who have a healed soul, and who have whole relationships, where they look at us and they go, their shepherd must be amazing. He must be, he must be so good. I wanna get to know him. I wanna get to know him. And if we are faithful to say, Jesus, we want you to lead us, I promise you that Jesus will be faithful to feed us. And when he feeds us, we experience rest. We experience wholeness. We experience life. And today, today, we get the chance to celebrate this table, which is the greatest picture of the way that Jesus feeds. He feeds through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection to make a way for you to find rest and healing and wholeness. So let me invite you to put your things away and we will journey towards the table together. If you're serving this morning, I'd invite you to begin making your way up. And the scriptures would command us as we come to this table to examine ourselves. I think in light of our text today to, to maybe say, Jesus, is, am I frantic? Jesus, is there anything in my soul that I'm, I'm holding on to? Jesus, is there anything with other people that I need to commit to making right? I would ask you to ask those questions. Hold your life open before the Lord. Ask him to search you. Ask him to know you. This table is open to all who are followers of Jesus. If that's not who you are this morning, I would invite you to just let the elements pass you by. But as you do, can I ask you to just dwell on one question? One question. Is the shepherd of your life better than the one that we talked about this morning? And if not, Maybe today is the day that you repent and turn and run into his kingdom. I assure you, his arms are wide open to you. Let's pray and then go to his table. Jesus, thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection.
as we come this morning, would you feed our souls that we might flourish in your way? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.